1: SHUT
2: UP AND SIT DOWN! All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Hunter Chronicles podcast. This week's podcast is another one we recorded at Outdoor-Rama. We sat down with Ernie Power, John Eberhardt, and Tim Clark, and uh, we talked with Ernie about his his history, uh, hunting, his background, and how he got into saddle hunting, and the progression into... From the tree service to engineering job to tethered, and then um, we could kind of go into kind of the technical aspects of some of the testing that they're doing on saddles now. Um, What they're trying to do um, a couple things. He says keeps using a few acronyms. One being ASTM, which is the American Society for Testing and Materials, and TMA, which is the Tree Stand Manufacturers Association. Um, so that's what the standards are for tree stands and what they are tested to at this point and um, how there isn't really a standard for saddles and uh, kind of where we're going with that. We got some tips and tricks in there and some little bit of insight from John Eberhard. Um It's great to sit down with him. And then Tim Clark talks a little bit about, um, the teach and train events and kind of the atmosphere and what we can expect from, uh, the teach and train events coming up from tethered here. Um, as the year progresses, uh, they were shooting for 20 cities in 2020 and they're up over 30 now, I believe. So, um, this podcast, um, we recorded before one of the days of the show. Um, uh, so we are just sitting around in a hotel room and, uh, just kind of knocked out a quick podcast and the podcast the previous podcast from the time's up outdoors guys we videoed that one put that video out for our patrons we're working really hard to increase our video production and the things that we're giving out to our patrons so that video they've had for a while i just uploaded that on the youtube um our YouTube page, so go over there and check that out. And, and it's a work in progress. You know, we're trying to uh, test out these programs and kind of get better. And we're using our Patreons kind of as a sounding board. They're they're able to view those videos ahead of time, tell us what we need to change, what they like, what they don't like, um, and it allows us to get more familiar with the equipment. Uh, but that video is up, and uh, I'm going to keep releasing the video podcast as they come out. But I, they're all going to the Patreons uh, first. And we're rapidly trying to get better and better on that. And so, um, we have uh, our giveaway set for uh, the first quarter, which is the Phantom uh, starter kit, uh, it's Phantom saddle, the tree tether and lineman's belt, as well as the swag pack from Base Map, as well as a one year subscription with Base Map, as well as the Jason Zamkoviek's bow hunting tips and tricks course which is a video series uh all of the things that he doesn't put out on his youtube channel if you're not following along with his youtube channel there's some great information on there Uh, but the stuff he's putting into this course are are all of his kind of like secret close to the vest things that he's not uh that he's not putting out there um and so that one of our lucky patreons is gonna uh, win that we're gonna draw that here uh the first week of april so if you want to check that out or you want to get involved with that, uh, you can go on to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash podcast and check that out, or there's links to it on our website. Um, But if not, you know, when you're listening to this and you're taking away something from it, just tell one of your friends, you know, tell somebody, hey... Did you hear about what they're trying to do with the saddles and there's all these saddle companies and how do you know they're safe? Well, this is what they're working towards and this is the time frame that's going to take or uh, any other, other podcast that uh, you've listened to and taken something away from, you know just tell somebody and follow along with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Those video podcasts are going to be going out each week, um, basically a week behind the audio podcast. So um, go over there, and we're going to be doing a lot more uh, review-type videos and some of the gear that we've been using, like, for example, the Phantom versus the Trophy Line versus the Mantis. Um, We've got some videos coming up with that, and we're still um, going to be doing our um, basically comprehensive um, climbing stick video because uh, we've got just about every climbing stick known to man. Um and just going to do a, a video kind of outlining each one of the, the sticks and, and, and t- have them all in one place uh, so you don't have to watch a million different videos. Uh, but all of that stuff is coming as we're feverishly building our studio to have a place where we can have something to be consistent and continue to put out the same quality of videos um, that we try to put out as far as the audio quality of our podcast. Um, But all this couldn't be, you know, we couldn't do any of this without you guys, the listeners, and then the Patreons who are supporting us. You know, I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you guys. Um, This is a really fun episode, a lot of great information in there. Um, So check it out. I know you guys are going to enjoy it. But thank you so
0: much for listening.
2: Hey everybody, Adam, back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. John and I are sitting here at the Hyatt Place for the Outdoorama in Novi. Uh, special guests today, uh, Ernie Power with Tethered, uh, John Eberhardt, and Tim Clark from Tim's Mom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Stole my line. <laughs> uh, is uh, is here as well. So, um, wanted to just sit down and, and kind of talk. We're... We're here working the tethered booth um, for the new Phantom, and as we get into this, you know, Ernie, I don't know, he he's maybe the face, you know, he's got the hat, he's got the hair, everybody kind of knows who Ernie is, um, but we want to get a little bit of backstory. You know, we like to, to figure out people's hunting styles and, and kind of how they got to where they're at. Um, so, Ernie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, like your how you grew up hunting and kind of how it all evolved into into where you're at today sure sure um
3: well i guess the the thing for me is uh i didn't grow up in the whitetail woods i grew up out in the rocky mountains and so for me hunting was all spot and stock on foot you know that time of deal you you cover a lot of ground you're shooting across canyons um i never even picked up a bow until i was in my 30s um so then, when I moved to Minnesota to go to college and had to start learning how to hunt around there, the whole tree stand idea was completely foreign to me um, so I had to learn how to do that so it's been kind of a learning curve to figure out you know the whole difference of being in a tree stand and being so close to animals and then you know kind of progress into bull hunting um, I was a uh tree trimmer for a long time uh when i was when I was a senior in college. Uh, a tornado went through and wiped out our school. And uh, there was nowhere to work, and I was thousands of miles from home, and so I didn't really have anything to do. I didn't have anywhere to live. I was living in a camper. uh, And the local tree service was hiring cash under the table to help clean up the city. And I had experience from running a chainsaw in a previous job, and so I said, sure, I got nothing better to do. (laughs) So I started... uh, trimming trees with those guys and that led into a whole bunch of years of tree trimming but that's kind of where the where the saddle thing started for me is um i spent a ton of time trimming trees and using that type of equipment and and one day my buddy is like you know you should just bring that out in the woods you could get up into any of these trees and hunt out of it and so at that time uh i didn't have any i still don't know what i'm doing but then i knew even less And, uh, so I did, I took my, my work gear, my, my saddle and my spurs and my ropes that are covered in gas and oil and chainsaw exhaust and put them on and hiked up into some trees. But, uh, at that time I was still rifle hunting and most of my stuff was field edges and long distance types of stuff. And, uh, I did that for, for several years actually, um, until I found my first commercial saddle. And I was like, oh, man, other people are doing this too? (laughs) Like, this was before I was on the Saddle Hunter forum or anything. It just was like, oh, my goodness, other people are doing this, and this is a way better deal. And that's when I started trying to be more obsessed with with, uh, scent control and and some of the other things. What year is that? Uh, It would have been 98 or so, somewhere around that range, maybe 2000. Okay. Um, Because, yeah, so... Yeah, the Tornado was in 98, so probably around 2000, 2001 um, is when I started doing, you know, hunting out of my work gear, and then it progressed in, and I didn't uh, pick up a commercial saddle. I missed the trophy line thing. I, I just wasn't paying attention. I don't know. And So, the first commercial saddle that I bought was actually a Guido's Web. Okay. Um, and uh, it just went from there. So, um, I don't claim to be a good hunter. I I've gotten better. Um, I have no choice, but to get better because I'm hanging out with guys like John and the hunting public and I'm hanging out with Dan in and I'm getting to spend all this time and you're just hearing the stories and you're hearing all these strategies and, you know, just it's a waterfall of information falling on you trying to figure out, okay, how did that work again? And what did you do? And, and every now and then, there's, there's something that you just, you just didn't pick. I mean, John was telling a story last year, um, of where he was hunting. He couldn't get in there cause it was too noisy. Uh, the ground was frozen, the leaves were frozen, but it was too noisy. And so he intentionally went in there in the morning and spooked everything out and then went back home and went back in and hunted the afternoon because he knew that he had kicked everything out. And it, it, That was a technique I'd never heard of before. So, um, yeah. So like I said, it's uh, it's been a long progression. Um, you know, we got into the saddle thing through the Saddle Hunter Forum. Uh, back then, there was, there was a little niche community of people. In fact, uh, Greg, my business partner, I knew him for several years as G2 Outdoors on the forum and had never seen his face. Um, In fact, I didn't... (laughs) We had already started the foundations of Tethered for a couple of months before I ever met him face-to-face. (laughs) Jesus. It was... uh, Yeah, I met him face-to-face at a Saddlepalooza, but by then, Tethered was already in the motion. Um, And it's weird, because the first time I went to Saddlepalooza... All of these people that I've known forever on the, the forum, well, now all of a sudden they have faces and names. And it's it's like, you know so much about this person, but at the same time, it's like, okay, now i got to start remembering their real names and who's that guy again and whatever else. And a lot of those guys are still in my phone under their Saddle Hunter name. So most of the guys from back then, it'll say like their Saddle Hunter name and then their real name is how I've got them in my phone so I can get a hold of them. So. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where this all came from. Uh, you know, the Greg and I, well, there was actually some other people involved in the beginning, but Greg and I, uh, wanted to be able to provide stuff that so many people had to DIY and post and like, you know, I had to search here and search there and, you know, even back then, you know, we called it the saddle hunter effect because if you were to go on Amazon and buy something that, uh had been recommended on a Saddle Hunter forum. The recommended, you know, other people who searched for this bought this, and it'd be a bunch of just random stuff that didn't relate to anything except for Saddle Hunters. You <laughs> know, it'd be like weird little shoulder brackets that people were using to make a ring of steps and like all these odd things that have no relation to each other, but Amazon had pieced them together from all the Saddle Hunters buying, you know, this, that, and the other on there. So it was... It's uh this is cool because now you've got kind of a one-stop shop and saddle hunting is exploding. It's great. People uh people everywhere are picking it up. You're getting to see more and more of it. And that's bringing more and more innovation and more and more people to the game and it's it's good for everybody.
2: Right. And so with that tree background and that's kind of how you got into the the, the saddle or the commercial saddle type side of it, but you have a, a engineering background, you know, right so
3: yeah so it's not just you're not just the tree guy in the no the 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 tree thing was actually kind of a delay in my engineering career um i uh i have a physics degree uh for a bachelor's degree and then i have a master's in engineering on top of that um but i went and i did the tree trimming thing out of college because after after the school opened up again um i was like oh i don't really have anything better to do so i just went back to the tree service and i worked with them and i was like oh i'll work here a few months pay up a few bills and my whole intention was always to move back out west um well i just didn't and i and i was there and i was there and then i was like okay well i started applying for jobs with my physics degree and more and more the jobs that i was applying for or at least the ones that seemed interesting to me ended up going to engineering people and i kind of got tired of that and So I'm still tree trimming this whole time. And I I call up the local university. I'm like, hey, what is it going to take for me to change this physics degree to an engineering degree so that I can get a job? And uh, so I went back to school and uh, did two and a half years full time to get my master's in engineering degree. And the whole time I'm still trimming trees. In fact, at that point, I had started my own tree service. And uh, I just got comfortable. It was like... You know, I was a foreman on a crew, I had a pretty decent money coming in, job was easy, I liked being outdoors, and they just never really got out and tried to find that engineering job. Uh, and then one day I herniated a disc, and I was like, well, this sucks, I can't really do this you know, full-time anymore, and at that point I was, I was working full-time for the utility company as a trimmer, but I was also working another 30-40 hours a week for myself. And I said, well, let's put this engineering degree to work. And it was awesome. You know, they, they always say that, you know, things happen for a reason. And that was being hurt was the motivation for me to use my engineering. And all of a sudden I have a desk job and, like, it's 15 below and I don't have to bundle up to work outside. And, you know, things got a lot better from that perspective. But um, And it opened up a lot of doors, you know, being able to be in that engineering and, and all of that stuff, you know, Provided the background for some of the more technical aspects of what we've been doing. Um, yeah, it worked out really well. And it, it allows me to kind of speak the language with some of the engineers that we work with now. Um, so like the the Predator platform, there's actually several engineers that were involved in getting that all together and, and out the door. And um, we've got uh, a couple of guys who work on all of our patent stuff. And, you know, it's it's all part of being able to talk that same language and do the same stuff with those guys that are helping you.
2: Yeah, to me, that's, I think, one of the things that's kind of remiss in all of this, you know, where there's all this noise online about, oh, this company, blah, 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 and and how Tethered came about, and it's just, you know, there's one saddle company out there that says, well, we've been doing it forever, and where is your testing, and how is everything, you know, you guys are just DIY guys, you know, the background there in, A, you know, running a, a, being a foreman on a crew for a tree service and all of the safety and everything that goes into that with a degree in physics, when you're talking about falls and static and, you know, dropping and all of that sort of stuff, it's not like you guys just said, okay, well, we're going to just go right into this. Everything is being done. And you guys are really championing the TMA standards for saddles and saddle hunting and things like that. So how, how is that process? And in, in the cause one of the big questions is always
3: safety. Sure. Um, so anybody who's kind of involved in this and whatever knows that there's not necessarily, um, a specific set of standards for saddle hunting. Um, and so what we, from the very first day, we're like, okay, let's start looking at what's out there. And we pulled specs from the mountain climbing community and we pulled it from the tree trimming community and we pulled it from TMA. Um, what, what a lot of people might not understand about TMA is TMA isn't a spec. It's not. Um, they're an organization that promotes testing, but all of their testing is actually an ASTM spec. So it's a national organization, um, specification that TMA just says, well, if you want to be recognized by us, you've got to pass these testing standards that are actually written by somebody else. So TMA doesn't own a spec. Um, and that it's a little confusing in the wording when you talk to, you know, everything says TMA approved. Well, all that does is say that yeah, we tested to the specifications they want us to test to, and then they say okay, yes, you passed these specs. Um, at the end of the day, that's an organization that, that kind of helps with uh, tree sand manufacturers trying to keep everybody safe. But at the same time, they've got a recommended list of like lawyers and whatever else for liability stuff, and it, you know, it's kind of a help everybody in the industry just keep being in the industry. You know, there's a at one point, there was 30, 40 tree stand companies out there, and now there's, you know, ten. And it's because bad stuff happens. And um, so, what's going on right now with the TMA, you know, the TMA spec, if you will? And like I said, it's it's not TMA. Um, the uh, head people at TMA brought all of the saddle manufacturers together at ATA this year, and they were like, "Okay, you guys don't have a standard," and as tree stand manufacturers, we went through this you know, 20 years ago or whatever, and we didn't have standards, and we had problems and, and whatever else, and our life got way easier once we had a standard because then we were able to protect ourselves um, from any kind of damages and lawsuits and stuff like that because we said, hey, we have this spec, and we came up with a list of rules and instructions. So he's like, you guys really got to do this, and he says, I'm not here... To tell you what that spec is, he goes. You guys know your product better than anybody else, and and you know the ins and outs of it. He says, but here's how I would suggest approaching it, and what they want, what they suggested is for us to form a committee, and that has been formed, and there's some there's some little subcommittees inside there. To basically come up with a list of what we think is important, what we think is safe, and testing uh, procedures, verbiage. That, you know, the first thing we had to do is come up with a glossary. You know, what's a bridge? What's a tether? Whatever. So, all of this stuff, so that we're all speaking the same language and we're all testing to a spec. And anything from like, you know, a platform. Yes, it's kind of like a tree stand, but because it's often subjected to side load, that's a test that doesn't get put into a normal TMA testing. So, you can go and get your platform tested as a tree stand, but that's all straight vertical load. And it doesn't really account for any kind of side pressure, stuff that, you know, a platform might see. So, anyways, we're going through and we're we're uh, going to try and write this set of requirements and then test procedures and pass-fail requirements and whatever. And all of that will then be bundled together and submitted to the ASTM committee. And the ASTM committee will go through their edits and rewrites, decide what they like, what they don't, you know, this works, this doesn't, this isn't realistic type of a deal, and it'll be a back and forth handshake between our saddle hunting community and the ASTM community to basically eventually evolve a set of standards that would be ratified by the ASTM, and then it will become an ASTM spec. It won't be a TMA spec, it won't be a saddle hunting spec, it'll be an ASTM spec that saddle hunters can then test to to then work their way into a TMA recognition. So it's It's going to be a very long process. I mean, it's going to be years for that spec to be written um, because there's going to be so much back and forth. And we have a committee that meets every month and it's like, okay, this month we're going to work on this. But at the end of the day, we can work as hard as we want, excuse me, to get this thing written. And the ASTM guys might say, it's all garbage. Start over. So it's going to take a lot of handshake back and forth to do that. Um but I think it's important because we can only test to so much and we can only test to the standards that are out there. And so we've gone and we've gone to a third-party TMA test lab and we've done a lot of the testing that's there. Um, But it's still, you know, for example, there's a uh, test for a fall arrest harness that's a face-first fall. And it's intended for the guy who falls off the front of his stand and goes forward but it's also based around the fact that he's connected between his shoulders on the back. And so as he falls forward, that strap on the back of your shoulders pulls you upright and then you are caught. Well, you try and do that face first fall in a saddle and your attachment points are funny and whatever else. And it's even just setting up the test is, is very difficult because the first thing that happens when that guy falls is the bridge pulls him and he spins back face in the tree. And then all these things happen that, they weren't the intention of the original test. Um, so it's trying to figure out a set of standards that makes sense. Um, what makes me nervous is uh, you see some, I mean, every day there's a, there's another saddle for sale out there. And it's like, yeah, I had my 250 pound buddy sit in it for six hours. It's safe. Um, but that doesn't take into account some of the, the extreme forces and the things that are involved with some of these drop tests and things like that, or it doesn't take into some of the weird angles and positions and whatever else. Um, I mean, it's great that people are testing, but I think it needs to go further than, you know, hooking it up to a come along in your backyard. It,
2: and along with that, when you're talking about that, any of the, I guess any of the tests with uh, a saddle, um, creating that standard is going to be imperative because I mean, as we're setting up people at the show and I can say, the difference in size between John, Tim, and, you know, everybody in this room, you're going to keep your your tether height and the length of your bridge and how far away from you are from the tree is going to be different. Sure. And that's going to change
3: where that swing... It changes a bunch of things. Um, you know, we... Some of that can be addressed in your manuals. Um, you know, instruction manuals need to cover things like, you know, don't don't put a bunch of slack in your system. So for for our particular manual, um, we've got illustrations of, you know, don't let your carabiner on your bridge get below your waist. As you're climbing and you're moving your tether or whatever, keep that carabiner, you know, waist higher, higher. So that automatically is going to limit the amount of, you know, fall should you step off of anything. So you're constantly taking slack out of your system. Um, so that kind of stuff makes a big difference um, because, you know, in order to have a you know quote unquote extreme fall in a saddle, you got to really try. Um, you know, let's say you're climbing up and you're climbing up and you st- all of a sudden you're standing above where your tether is tied to the tree. Well, now you've got that whole drop down to where your knot is and then all the way back down to the end of the thing. and that's just unnecessary if you're paying attention and you're moving your ropes and you're keeping the slack out of your system. Um, most of the uh, you know, like in the tree trimming world, Everything is, you know, keep the slack out of your system so you don't fall. You might swing, but you don't fall. And that's kind of the way that we really focus on these tree saddles It's the same thing. You know, you might get a good pucker moment and you might, you know, drop six, eight inches. But for the most part, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to eat a little tree bark when you hit the tree. Um, and that's where we like to keep those, those shock loads and those impacts to a minimum by just keeping that slack out of your system. And so... um, in the absence
2: of testing and doing your due diligence, and, and obviously you guys are um, with the new saddle. So you've got the Phantom that's coming out, and yep. then we've got John Eberhart here. So we'd be kind of remiss if we didn't say that John's got his own uh, plan and the the Eberhart saddle, and, and kind of what's going on with that. That's in conjunction with Tethered, right? Yep. So what with this the the new Phantom, what? Um, like, so the safety ratings and all that, cause that's one of the odd things. And you, you would, you, I've heard you say it at the show a bunch of times is like, well, this, this this saddle is rated to 300 pounds because
3: yeah, well, <laughs> so yeah, our stuff is rated to 300 pounds quite simply because it's the biggest test dummy that the TMA lab has. So we tested with their 300 pound dummy and I know that it performs with a 300 pound dummy. Could it perform with a bigger dummy? Sure. Possibly it may I don't know, but I've never been able to test it. So for me to, to, you know, in all consciousness say, yeah, it's good to this weight rating. I have to keep it to what I had available when we tested. Right. Um, and so, and it's, you know, that dummy's the dummy that they have at the, the TMA lab, um, I mean, 300 pounds is a lot of weight, but not only that, it's a solid steel dummy. So when it comes down to a dead stop on any of your ropes or any of your stuff, it doesn't absorb any impact like a human body would, you know, you're going to have muscle tissue and fat and whatever, who's going to kind of work as a spring to kind of absorb some of that, that steel dummy doesn't give. <laughs> and so it's, it's an extreme version of some of the impacts that are done and it's really violent. Um, The, <laughs> the the things that the, the noises and the sounds and the, the banging when that dummy comes to a dead stop at the end of these ropes and it's really crazy to see and the, the first time i went and watched it you know the, you've got butterflies or something it's like what's going to happen you don't know and and uh you see it fall and you see it hit the end of that rope and you see and and then you see it it's still hanging there and it didn't break anything you're like holy cow it, it's it's hard to even believe that it is there just simply because you watch What's well, all involved, and it's such a violent test.
2: And so, let's talk about the the Phantom, like sure. so the, the the new saddle. The it was all the buzz at ATA. Won the what best in show or most the innovative award?
3: Yep, we got actually we got a third place award um, for best new product launched at ATA. Um, which, if you think about it, we're in a room full of tree stand manufacturers who don't want us there and not only did they have to acknowledge that we were there, but they voted and gave us an award. So for a bunch of people who didn't want us there to go so far as to even give us an award for being there, I thought was pretty spectacular.
2: But so for, in this this saddle, so uh, one thing being at the show, like, like Tim has said, you know, we, uh, we're we kind of in the echo chamber, I think, in what we do. So we hear about all the saddles and all the changes and all the, the things. But to, to have a, a, a social media age kid guy man woman whatever walk by and say what is that um even just never seeing a saddle before say oh that's one of those things to hang the stand or that's a a tree climbing thing um is Mm -hmm. just such a such an oddity and then for to have the new saddle to try to explain what has changed and what's different um to them uh, it's just uh, mind-boggling right but to to me because it it is
3: (laughs) Um, and you're right. You know, when you get uh, when you get somebody who's paid attention a little bit and knows some some of the brands, or maybe has even purchased a saddle from this company or that company, they can come up and they can talk and be like, okay, what's different about this? And um, but for the new saddle hunter, it's almost like I don't even try. I I, I can't explain what's different. I just haven't tried it on, and it's quite possibly my favorite moment of every experience like that because. You put it on, and you get them tied to the tree, and it's like, okay, now sit. And that that little fear goes in because now they're trusting their rope, and they they go to sit down. And then it's almost like they're confused. And they look, and this light goes on because, wait a minute, it's not supposed to be this comfortable. It's not supposed to feel this secure. And they look, and then they kind of swing a little bit, and they're like, this is awesome. And right then you've got another saddle hunter. It's it you, it's, you can just watch it happen, and it's my favorite moment of introducing a saddle to anybody is seeing that. And you can watch it in their face. It's awesome. Um, but, yeah, it's I hear it all the time. Well, this is way more comfortable than I thought it was going to be. Um, this doesn't hurt at all. Or, man, I really have a lot of movement. And, you know, even the guys that are, like, trying to figure out how to position around the tree, and, you know, they look a little clumsy and whatever else, but they're like – I think I could get this if I spent a little time on it. And that's just really cool.
2: So let's talk about the features of the new saddle. What what makes this different from the, your previous product, the Mantis, or any of the other things that are out there?
3: Sure. Um, so the thing with the Phantom, uh, we've had our Mantis out there, right? And the Mantis is a great saddle. A lot of deer have been killed. A lot of people use it. Um, but if we were to just sit back on our laurels and do nothing... You know, that's not going to help the industry at all. It's not going to help us at all or whatever. So we sit and we take all the feedback, you know, all the customers and all the, you know, our guys and everybody is like, you know, what would we change and what would you do? And we don't just take the feedback from our products. We listen to what people are saying about other products too. And we're like, okay, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? What would you change if we could? Um, I mean, ultimately that's how the Manus was born is because there was a whole bunch of people and we we're like, what would you change about you know the current offering that's out there today if you could? And when the Manus was being developed, most of the changes that came up in that discussion were already in the Manus, and we you know we just couldn't talk about it yet. Um, so we we tried to make a few different changes, and a lot of them are small changes, uh, but they end up they end up creating a bigger effect. You know, the 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 sum is greater than the parts in the Phantom. It really is. Um, so one of the things that we ended up doing um, was we changed the shape of the manis or from the manis to the phantom to create more of a cupping effect. Um, and there's, there's other ways of doing it and where we did it with a single piece of fabric to create a cup out of a flat sheet um, is actually one of our, our uh, IP uh, details on the saddle, but that allows the saddle to cup your body shape a little better and that does two things it, it's a little more comfortable but it also helps prevent any of the the riding up that people have experienced in some saddles um so it keeps the saddle in place um it's it's really amazing because by adding that shape we we're actually able to shrink the saddle a little bit because it it works so well but it doesn't have to be as big uh we actually had three sizes originally and we had the uh, Our different testers, we gave them all these sizes and whatever else. It was crazy because regardless of body shape, almost unanimously, everybody came back and said they liked the same one. And so we're like, why do we need to make multiple sizes if it seems to work for everybody? Uh, So that was a big deal. Uh, The adjustable bridge that we've got on there, uh, you know, people like to be able to adjust that for... A lot of your hip pinch comes from your bridge length. And on uh, on some people, if they like, if the bridge is really tight, it pulls the sides in, causes some hip pinch. So being able to extend that out uh, helps a lot there. But also being able to suck that bridge down tight for when you're walking, it gets things clean to your body <clears throat> and uh, makes it so that you can get through the woods without having a bunch of stuff hanging out and flopping and whatever. That bridge is actually uh, kind of a cool story, but. You know, we tried a bunch of different ways to do it, and, you know, things worked, didn't work. They weren't quite perfect. We didn't like how it worked. You know, there's some there's some ways that you can make a bridge similar with with a single piece of Amsteel and tie in some knots, but that ends up locking up really tight when you put weight on it, or it doesn't hold as well because when Amsteel is subjected to a load, it gets really straight and really slippery. By the way that we built our bridge, we put a core inside of it that gives that Amsteel steel kind of a squishy effect. It gives it something to squeeze and grab onto. So that's something that, uh, you know, we don't really talk about all the things that we tried that didn't work. We come out with, here's what we did that did work. Um, The comfort channels, the comfort channels were a big deal. For me, out of all the things in the Phantom, the comfort channel is my favorite feature. Because it allows you to force the bridge to be where you want it on the saddle. And that directs the proportion of weight that's held in the top or the bottom of the saddle. So you can really fine-tune. If you want more weight being held in the bottom of the saddle, you can do that. If you want more in the top, you can do that. And you can really force that bridge to be where it needs. That does uh, two things. It directs the pressures where you want them. You can redirect pressure over the course of a hunt if you're starting to get hot spots, and also because you're able to kind of do that it ties in with the shape and it keeps that cupping effect so that you're not gonna have a saddle ride on you so that helps a lot um the lineman loops are different the uh lineman loops is kind of a it's a boring overlooked detail on a saddle for most people right it's it's there you use it but uh on a traditional style saddle, the lineman loops were up on the waist belt, and uh, they were a folded over loop that sometimes it was hard to find, sometimes it was hard to hook into, but more than that, when you leaned back into it, all of your weight on your back was across that the waist belt, and so it would get uncomfortable while you're hanging your sticks or you're doing a bunch of scouting and climbing and doing things like that. Whereas we changed our lineman loop so that it supported you across the entire body of the saddle. So a lot of that pressure gets relieved and the lineman loops are huge. You can run your fist through them. They're stiff. They're easy to clip into. So they're. I mean, it's the lineman loop is a boring detail, but on this, it's actually pretty cool.
2: And so John, uh, mm-hmm. John Eberhardt, I was reading online How as you we doing? were going, going through these uh, things they're saying, like when... Tim posted a picture of everybody that was in the 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 tethered booth this weekend. Uh, someone said, well, there's John Eberhardt, the Michael Jordan of saddle hunting, right? That's who we've got sitting here, and you've got your own. So have you messed around with the phantom? And wow, absolutely. And so you still have your own ideas on, mm-hmm. is it... Um, like your personal preference I've hunted out of the same style forever because your saddle that the one that you're developing with tethered is a completely different shape Mm -hmm. size everything is is completely different so can you tell us um, kind of your take on you know the different styles of saddles and then
4: the saddle that you have that you're working on and what what the differences are and why and and first off I want to say this Uh, I've written three books I've got a a chapter in each book about saddle hunting and you know I've been doing it since 1981, and there's been so many times I've wanted this saddle thing to grow exponentially because it's such a monstrous advantage when you're hunting. I mean, I I can't underline that big enough. And Trophy Line came out with something, and there was a little spur of activity when Trophy Line came out with theirs. And then when they went away, uh, New Tribe, you know, because they were making some stuff similar for uh, recreational tree climbers. Uh, people went to them to make something, and but they did no advertising or anything like that to promote it, actually. Uh, and then Greg and Ernie came out, and I mean, they have literally blown it up. And they're taking advice from saddle hunters, people that actually hunt from saddles. And they are constantly trying to critique it and make it the best that it can be. And right now on the market, there is no doubt in my mind that phantom is the best saddle on market at this moment. Mine is gonna be different, or ours I should say. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> it's gonna be called the Eberhardt signature. I mean, it does saddle. have your name on it. <laughs> and it won't be out until uh probably late July. And it's I, I'm not gonna talk a lot about it because it's not here. So uh, I am suggesting people look at the Phantom right now, but mine is gonna be a two panel system. It's gonna be it's gonna it's gonna be totally different than, than that. It's going to be a modification of what I've been using since
3: 1981. And saddles, I mean, not not everybody is going to like the same thing. Um, not everybody uses a saddle all the time. I mean, we've always pushed it. It's just another tool in your toolbox. And uh, there's definitely people who are going to like one style over another. And uh, in our goal to be, you know, the one-stop saddle hunting shop, we want to be able to accommodate that need for all the different types of customers. And so... Um, the, the Eberhard saddle is definitely going to be a different animal than, than the phantom. Um, but there's also different styles of hunters and different types of people out there. So in order to kind of accommodate the world, we want to be, have a world offering.
4: Can I say something real quick? Sure. Cause I've been in this industry since 1975. Um, and I've been a sales rep in the industry since 1992. So I go to a lot of shows, shot shows, ATA shows every year for 30 years. I have never ever seen a company that's 18 months old grow as fast as tethered has i mean they are taking the industry by storm and it's because of the social media presence and these guys are reacting to what people want and it's life. i love it i've been pushing this thing for years and finally these two guys have grabbed it by the reins and they're just taking off with it and it's awesome
2: well and john i know you do your seminars and you do Uh, you know, you're, you've been been trying to show and tell everybody, uh, saddle hunting. And that's one thing that tethered is doing a great job of as well as creating now these teach and train events. And there's, what did you say? 30.
3: I think we have 30 cities planned. Now we started out, our goal was 20 cities in 2020. Um, but the more, you know, excitement that's been created and the more people that want to get involved, we've able to pick up a few more cities and it looks like we've got 30 different, uh, events. Set up for this year and some of those are trade shows where you can come to the trade show and try some stuff on in the booth and whatever but others are as simple as you know a guy in the neighborhood is setting up in a city park we're going to cater in lunch there'll be some prizes there'll be some surprises there will be um, discounts for people who come to these teach and train events and that kind of a deal but the main point of it is because you can't really get a saddle in a store we want to be able to provide places that people can come and try everything out you know and that way you can put your hands on it you can feel it you can sit in it you can get that aha moment and do it and so yeah we're up to we're up to i believe 30 cities for this year and and i wouldn't be surprised if that grows as the spring progresses and the reason i say that is because we've got
2: tim over here and and tim was doing these last year and he's a big i mean so background on you tim you've been saddle hunting now for how many years 10 10 years this is my last so year.
1: last year was my 10th season i believe it was like 2009 or 10 something like that when i bought my first trophy line so,
2: so okay. very hipster um saddle hunting before it was cool um and but you've been doing these uh, events around here in michigan you know for the last couple of years and you've got all this stuff so Take us through what what happens at these events, because uh, when you read on it, the cool thing about these these Tethered Teach and Train events is, you know, not a saddle hunter, we don't care. Hunt from a different kind of saddle, doesn't matter. Come check it out and, and see it. So uh, walk us through kind of the the atmosphere and, and the reactions that you're getting from yeah. from people.
1: Yeah, so it's exactly that. It's an uh, opportunity to get together with people that want to learn this stuff. Because, like Ernie said, you can't find this stuff in the stores. You can't go just grab a saddle off a shelf somewhere and go, hey, I think I might try that. Right? So it's kind of hard. It's getting easier now because more and more people have them. So a lot of people have a friend that might have something. But it's been really difficult to actually be able to get a realistic critique of the equipment, whether it's one manufacturer or two or three or four, you know, when it comes to the saddle itself or climbing sticks or anything like that so that was where I started doing this stuff just basically to get people together and kind of just show how you can climb a tree and hang from a saddle safely and the differences in how people get up a tree is kind of fun to experience I mean I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody do something that I'm going I've only heard of that or I've never heard of it and then I adopted into my own climbing style or whatever And then uh, to be able to spend a day with people, it's just like we do with Saddlepalooza. That was really the the flavor that I was trying to capture when I started doing my own things. It was like, that's really cool to hang out for an extended period of time with a bunch of guys, have a really good lunch. So I usually provide a bunch of burgers and hot dogs or brats or something and do a good lunch, hang out, give a chance for guys to really spend some time testing out other people's you know, climbing methods, testing out different saddles, all that stuff. I think education is a key piece, especially when you're dealing with stuff that you have to be safety-minded with. It's not the same as a tree stand, where everybody's hunted out of a tree stand. You know, as you put sticks up a tree, and you hang this thing, and you set it up. And most people do that once a year, hang all their stands, and then just go use them, right? Everybody's learned how to sit down on a chair, <laughs> you know, like life. Not everybody learned how to hang from a rope, you know, so... It's kind of fun to be able to do that. So when I started doing that, Greg and Ernie were, were awesome. They sent a whole bunch of equipment. You know, When I mentioned what I kind of wanted to do, I reached out to everybody in the industry and said, hey, I'm going to try to do this. I'd like to have as much equipment to show off as I can and kind of do show and tell with all this. Greg and Ernie sent a whole kit of every size of Mantis saddle and some Predator platforms and a bunch of stuff. And they've been all about education and stuff from day one, too. So that was really fun, been able to get a lot of people sized up for what they need so they could order the right one and try it for the first time. It's really fun, and you you really do. You meet a lot of great people, and that's been probably one of the, the hidden gems inside of this whole thing. The saddle hunt community really is a, a pretty
4: cool group of people.
1: There's not many. I've,
4: I've got something to add to that, because when I first started doing my workshops a few years ago, I always invited people that were saddle hunting, because I always do saddle demos um, at the end of the first day. I said, bring your stuff and, you know, get in a tree, and I'll critique how you're using your bridge or your, how, how you're hooking your lead or how you're sitting in the seat. I couldn't believe some of the stuff these people brought. I mean, most of them were hunting out of, uh, at the time, you know, trophy line stuff. A couple of them had, had some kestrels. They had so much crap. I'm looking at these guys with all the stuff they've got on their waists and the the saddles were a lot bigger. You know, they're four pounds and deeper seats and they're just a lot more bulky. And I'm thinking to myself, I obviously didn't say anything to anybody, but I'm like, there isn't a way on God's green earth. I would bring that much stuff to go up a tree and run out of
3: a saddle. You don't even bring a phone. I
4: don't even, I would never take a phone in the tree. I'm there to hunt and kill some knots of tech. Well, but it, but that's you one. can't be a saddle hunter. You've got to be able to take selfies in the tree. <laughs> but I got to say, you guys have brought this weight thing and mobility thing and size down. And, and it's it's just so compact and simple.
2: Well, what I like is, you know, so Tim and Ernie are here uh, in the booth in their hunting saddles. So they're with their, you know, what they take with them and looking at that, um, is kind of like, you know, the evolution of, uh, any hunter, right. Is, you know, you start out, I mean, even like elk hunting, right. So you start out day one with your pack is full of all this stuff and you walk 10 miles that day and you're like, okay, well, I probably don't need this and I probably don't need that. And so for some is a 20 year, 30 year journey to end up where we're at right now is, uh, you know, getting into the saddle hunting and, you know, spending, you know, the past year doing it, but you still are, are losing this. Okay. I probably don't need that. Or all of the, the, um, double coverage that you've got. Oh, I don't need two flashlights. I don't need this. I don't need that. And so seeing the efficiency in your setups, um, and like, you know, so you're in your hunting rigs with your stuff and they've got their their lineman's belts are still you know girth hitched around the thing and it's just really interesting to me so that would be one of the things i would think from like the saddle palooza side of it is to see the what the other tips and tricks you know you can read about it you can see it on youtube you can you know do any of that but to see it in real life and have somebody explain and show it like ernie last night at dinner is saying i have questions about spurs and how do you how do you uh, I just think of it as climbing a pole, like a pole tree. Well, why couldn't you use the climber or sticks or whatever? And he says, no, I climb any tree with a giant lineman's belt and just go mm-hmm. back and forth and back and forth. And so getting that experience and sitting down and talking to the people that have been doing it for a long time. Um, well, we've m- mentioned Saddlepalooza a couple times, and Ernie had said, you know, you're just coming off of uh, the Saddlepalooza from – from this year, right? Yeah, it was just. Uh, well, it was just last week. And um. And so, what is Saddlepalooza for people who are going? Like they keep saying this, but how would you find it? And sure, like, who's there? And what's um, the deal? So
3: Saddlepalooza... uh, well, it was born out of. It. So Greg, um, was also a member in a in a bunch of high or, uh, hammock forums, and the hammock forum guys started doing these hanging you know, like these hangouts, but they do like, uh, everybody come and and camp for a weekend in your hammocks and they have a little get together barbecue party or whatever. And we're like, well, Greg's like, well, why don't we do something like that for the saddle community? And, and at that point the saddle hunting was still kind of the nerdy thing and like nobody knew about it. And it was a thousand people on the saddle hunter forum. It was not a, a big thing. And so we set up an event for everybody to kind of come and hang out and, And show off their gear. Because at that point, almost everything that anybody had was homemade. And so we set up a a deal. He was was stationed there in Savannah at Fort Stewart. And so he got us permission to come and camp on the Fort Stewart property and camp there. But Fort Stewart also is full of wild pigs. And so we set this thing up as a wild pig hunt and a saddle get-together. And, you know, the first year there was, you know, 20, 30 people that showed up. Um, I didn't actually get to go the first year, uh, and I kicked myself. I mean, basically it boiled down to I didn't buy my plane ticket in time, and then the plane ticket got expensive. And instead I had to sit and watch from the sidelines through the forum. They're sending pictures and all this stuff. And I said, I'm never missing that again. And so the next year I went down and whatever else. But it's truly a agnostic saddle get-together uh I don't care what brand or what equipment you use we don't care any of that come out there have a few beers try and kill some pigs and spend the weekend in Georgia in February when like for me when I left Minnesota it was 10 below 0 so coming down to Georgia in February and leaving 10 below is worth it by itself um but it's grown I mean we had I don't know, probably close to 75 guys there this year. Uh, this year was awesome. We killed over 20 pigs. Um, lots of cool demos. In fact, one whole day of Saddlepalooza is set up specifically for a demo day. Everybody bring your stuff. We're going to set up on a whole bunch of trees. We're going to um, have lunch catered in, and we're going to sit there and do, you know, what's your cool thing that you learned last year? What's your cool thing? And And people are doing, like, these full demos of, how they're climbing trees or what new cool thing they built or bought. And and that's just the feel that we tried to capture. Like Tim said, with the teaching trains, get a bunch of people out there to kind of show their stuff and show everybody else. And you can learn and you can, you know, have a cool lunch and hang out. And, uh, it's just an excuse for saddle hunters to kind of get to know each other. And what's really gotten to be cool is now we're starting to see some of the same guys at saddle palooza two and three years in a row. So, it's kind of like a little reunion. You get down there like, hey, man, I haven't seen you since last year. Or, you know, how's your daughter doing? And all these different things that uh, it's really, you know, saddle hunting is a community. And I've seen it so many times where somebody in the community has some some hard time, something go on, and the community steps up and, and fixes it. Uh, I've seen things like where uh, a guy bought a bow online and, you know, ended up getting uh the wrong end of a deal and lost all his money didn't get his bowl and all of a sudden guys are pitching in and you know next thing you know the guy gets a bowl from the community to kind of make up for it and it's like it's a really cool really great bunch of guys and to get them all in a campground i mean if, if you think about it we had 70 guys camping in a campground for four days drinking a bunch of beer and there wasn't so much as an argument not a fight nothing it's just a bunch of cool guys there and it was just an awesome awesome weekend <laughs> so
2: with the 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 Saddle the Saddle community and and you know so you're talking about Georgia you're talking about all the places that you've been um uh, around and we talked a little bit about at the show like what's your favorite show and you know all the traveling that you've been doing in the last couple of years you've you've hunted Michigan a couple times mm-hmm. now And uh, what's your take on that now the second time through? The first time you came up and did some demos with John and did a little bit of hunting in his... JV spots I oh believe yeah you them. it he- was he- the
3: he- training <laughs> wheel stands no doubt basically here I'm gonna put you in this tree because I know I'm never gonna hunt it and you can't screw up my season is how that went
4: <laughs> I didn't even go
2: <laughs> and so then this year you came you came back for the yep. the public land challenge and and so what did Michigan meet your expectations or you know now you're, you're Ernie Power king of the saddle community the the face the hat the hair being recognized all over, hunting all over the world, and you come back to Michigan. How does it compare to all your other hunts that you did this past year?
3: It was hard. (laughs) Um, You know, Mother Nature didn't play very nice with us. Uh, You know, for those of you guys that followed the public land challenge, the first couple of days was like, it wasn't rain that you could sit in a stand and kind of muscle through. It was just, it was too much. Um, Water was high, and, and so we lost a couple of days for that. But then we started to really get in, you know, boots on the ground, get some scouting, getting some stuff going and trying to kind of figure out the area. You know, you you come to a new place you've never been to before, and it's kind of like throwing darts at a map. You don't really know where to start. Um, After a couple of days, though, we were starting to figure it out. Other guys on our team that we brought there were starting to see deer. Uh, Adrian had a really nice buck underneath his stand, and Ted saw a couple. And so it was like people were seeing deer and starting to get it figured out, and Greg and I got out and we were starting to get it figured out. And then all of a sudden we had to go. Um, we had a another event that we had to get to. And so we had to kind of cut that one short. But uh, I really feel like given a couple of more days, we'd have been able to make something happen because we were starting to get the feel for it. Um, I wasn't, I was surprised. I saw a lot more deer than I thought I was going to. Uh, I fully expected to come to Michigan and, just hang in a tree for a week and not see a single deer. I mean, that's the horror stories that you hear. Um, but it wasn't like that. I mean, we saw three or four different bucks over the course of the week. We just weren't able to put something together or get them in range. Other guys had shots. Um, we had, you know, things happen that, that I feel like we were getting on the edge of it. Um, and you know, had we not had those two days of rain, I think maybe we'd have been in a better position. Um, but it was it wasn't as bad as I thought. I, I really didn't think that uh we would see anything, you know, based on all the horror stories, especially when we changed locations. Uh originally we were supposed to be in a different part of the state that, you know, had a reputation for having a few more deer and we got moved into a different spot. I thought, well, that's the end of it. Um But uh yeah, I mean Michigan has habitat, it's got deer numbers. Um, you know, you still hear the stories of, you know, they don't have as many of the bigger deer or even the fact that to get big, a deer has to be a lot older. Uh, I can shoot a hundred and thirty inch two year old in Minnesota all the time. I mean, they're out there, and a two year old here in Michigan doesn't quite get to those kind of numbers. So, uh, yeah, because even you know some of the smaller bucks that we saw in talking to people, they're like, "Yeah, that's probably a two and a half, three year old deer," and I'm like. That thing's nothing,
4: but you know. well, the buck Cho shot was an eight point. I was a two year old. and It was probably eighty inches. Yeah, I guess.
3: Yeah, somewhere there. So, yeah, it was it was fun. Um, you know, if I had to, if I had to sit down and say where would I want to hunt and and have a great opportunity at killing a big deer, it probably wouldn't be where we were. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I wouldn't come hunt Michigan. I'm planning on coming out uh, this spring to do some turkey hunting and and possibly this fall for another deer hunt, just because uh along with everything else i like the challenge so it it worked out okay
4: yeah michigan let me interject something here because i'm from michigan so is tim michigan has a lot of deer in fact in a deer and deer hunting article a few years back dan schmidt um uh, he wrote if you probably the number one state to go to kill a deer is michigan could just due to the numbers just don't go there and expect to see a lot of mature bucks." so ernie it, it seems like and maybe
2: again it's just the the echo chamber but a lot of the guys that are um you know helping out and a lot of the names that i'm hearing from um the on the saddle forums and stuff it seems like there's a lot of michigan guys involved in in saddle hunting is that a more recent thing and maybe Tim, you're better to answer that or like it just seems like a lot of the names, a lot of the people that I'm seeing, like Michigan, where are the saddle numbers? I mean, you, you probably see that the sales of saddles. Where where are they being sold?
3: Michigan buys a lot of saddles. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt there. Um, but, I mean, some of it's just a statistics thing. Michigan has a lot of deer hunters. So, you know, you're more likely to have higher numbers of saddles in states that have, a, you know, Pennsylvania is a big one, too. I mean, we saw a lot of stuff into Pennsylvania. Um but I think some of it also comes from, uh, you know, you've got personalities in Michigan like John who've been pushing saddles forever. Um, you know, Andy May is here. He's a big saddle guy, and, you know, people know him. Now you've got Mark Kenyon using saddles. He's another Michigan guy. Uh, so you're starting to see some of that influx. But I think Michigan has a lot of personalities that help push that. So that helps a lot.
2: I guess you know, and I guess you don't have to answer this. I guess it doesn't go into numbers or anything. But where's the furthest that you've sold a saddle to? Like, where's the
3: most obscure place? Good question. (laughs) So, Africa? No, (laughs) no, I think I mean furthest would probably be New Zealand. Um, We've sold a few things into New Zealand, maybe a dozen. Um, We uh, surprisingly enough, we get a lot of stuff out of Europe. Finland, um, buys a lot of stuff. So some of those, uh, countries in Europe, believe it or not, bull hunting has been illegal and they are just getting to where bull hunting is starting to be legalized in some of these states or these countries. And because of that, there's really not a tree stand presence there. And so, um, a tree stand is just as foreign to these guys as a saddle. So these guys are doing their research and whatever else and and they're buying saddles to hunt in these European countries. Um, there's been articles written and there's been some really cool stuff happening over there with bull hunting that it's it's just odd, right? I mean, you can hunt with a firearm over there but you can't bull hunt, which is like just blows my mind in some of these situations, but um, that's been really cool, but I, I yeah, I think I think the furthest that we've shipped one is New Zealand. Um, I think we have an order in right now for Australia. Um, and I think he paid to expedite the shipping for it too. So it's like, you know, one thing I've learned in, in people in other countries, they're used to paying like crazy prices to buy American goods and get them to them. And it doesn't even phase them. And I'm like, you're spending more on shipping than you're spending on the product. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we get a lot of sales into Canada, but, uh, yeah, I would say New Zealand, Australia, those are probably the longest ones. Um, but the, you know, the stories coming out of Europe and some of those countries are cooler in my mind.
2: Yeah. We've got one of our Patreons who's in Switzerland. Um, so Jason, what's happening? But he's Polish and he's been, you know, trying to get into archery, but trying to find him a bow over there and like some of the rules and everything that surrounds that is, is crazy just to hear. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, I think we can kind of wrap this one up. We got to get going and get to the booth, get everything set up for today's show. We'll let John, our John, round it out because he has actually been yeah. sitting here the whole time. I'm
0: just, I'm just sitting here, and we got, you know, John Eberhard, we got
4: Ernie and Tim. I just like listening. To all, I'm just another listener today. So. Can I, can I clarify something? Cause sure. Ernie brought up something earlier about a situation of when I was deer hunting that he kind of remembered, but. Kind of surprised me, but uh, it was that was in Ohio, and it was a December hunt, and the leaves were really crispy. When I got down there, I planned on hunting for five days, which would be at least 10 sets, mornings and evenings, and it was so noisy that I blew off my morning hunts and only stuck to evenings, but I didn't want to spook deer with my entry because the leaves were so noisy, so I'd get up every morning because I had three locations prepped. I'd get up every morning at like 8 or 9 o'clock and I would walk to my trees. So I would spook all the deer way back. I could hear them going a quarter mile away from me. And that way, when I went back in the evening, you know, I was at a destination feeding location, They'd, they would feel more comfortable coming back as opposed to me spooking them with my evening entry. I knew they wouldn't come back. So that, I just want to clarify that. So did you end up killing a nice buck? No, I passed up about 110 inch or oh. uh, the year before I killed 140 inches.
2: Oh, well, you know, that's one of the things also is like, we're sitting here with, you know, we've talked with Tim on the, on the podcast. Tim says, I don't shoot anything less than a hundred inches in Michigan Like he wants book bucks. And, you know, he's targeting Pope and Pope and young, you know, John's in the same boat and Ernie's hunting all these places where the opportunities are there. You know, Ernie, we were telling Ernie a story about the deer that I should have killed in Idaho, at least i john's account and he says kill him just kill him just kill him but you know the amount of um, hunting knowledge really that's sitting right here and the and the guys that are involved and the amount of saddle hunting time you know it, ernie was talking to us prior to the podcast about people coming up and noticing all of the hunts that he's got and you know the more you're out there the more your face is out there online the more things that you put out people are paying attention but you know these guys are are really there's a ton of knowledge and they're all approachable um you know great people to 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 have as a resource just to reach out to if you've got any questions and i just want to thank you guys so much for sitting down with us and and, you know spending the weekend with us i mean it's been it's been awesome
3: oh it's been great i mean you guys have been you guys been awesome it's you know this is my favorite part of the job i mean I, I like the hunting, but I like getting out and meeting people and seeing and hearing stories and talking and whatever else. And so I mean this is fun. I mean by all means, come say hi. <laughs> Thanks all for right. the opportunity.
2: For sure. And that's all we got for you today. Thanks for listening.